Our Father and our God, as we come to the study of your word this morning, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to receive it, receive it by faith, a genuine faith, a faith that has come to us from you, a faith that is here because of your regenerating work by your Spirit. And so prompt us, O God, to respond in obedience to the commands of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. There is scarcely a more important issue in Christianity than faith. And yet faith is one of the most misunderstood words, I believe, in the church. We we find that elegantly expressed in the Gospel of John, which we have been studying together for, I don't know how long we've been studying it together. (laughs) Faith is the central message of the Gospel of John. The purpose statement in chapter 20, beginning in verse 30, reads this way, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And yet within the gospel itself, uh, faith or believing, it's the same Greek root, are used to describe responses to Jesus that are both saving and spurious. In John chapter 8, beginning in verse 30, we read, And he spoke these things, And as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So far, so good. Well, these so-called believing Jews were offended by the notion that what Jesus said implied that they were enslaved in some way, that they were not free. And so they got into an argument with the incarnate Son of God. Not exactly the wisest of strategies. And by the end of the chapter, we read in chapter 8, verse 59, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. These believers were trying to kill the very one they claimed to believe in. Even in the Gospel of John, the Gospel of faith, not all descriptions of faith or of believing are legitimate or are representative of true saving faith. Uh, That's the kind of thing that Jesus had in mind in Matthew chapter 7 when he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There are, according to Jesus, many in the church who claim to have a relationship with Jesus, who can't claim to believe in Jesus, who in fact call him Lord, whose faith is spurious, counterfeit. But truth be told, it doesn't take much faith to be saved. It really doesn't. It just takes the right kind of faith. Jesus said it could amount to nothing more than than a mustard seed kind of faith. 
Uh, the thief on the cross needed nothing more than a moment of clarity when he simply asked, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Uh, Jesus told the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, and the Pharisee was bold and eloquent in his prayer. Anyone listening would have regarded the man as a man of great faith. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, even when unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Whereupon Jesus said, I tell you, this man, that is the sinner, went to his house justified rather than the other. You see, even weak faith, small faith, even minuscule faith may be saving faith. But great faith, if it is the wrong kind of faith, is worse than useless. James puts it this way, you believe that God is one, good, you do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. Well, for most of us, faith is a mixed bag, isn't it? Uh, it's an, there's an implicit trust in Jesus, yet nagging doubts and the failure of will to follow the commands of Christ. We're like the father of the demon-possessed boy in, in Mark chapter 9 who says, I do believe, help my unbelief. Genuine faith becomes more important when the chips are down, however, when the challenges come and when our world seems to be falling apart. Faith becomes crucial when we're faced with doing the hard things, the things that seem irrational to us, the things which are countercultural. And what does faith look like under those circumstances? What, what does faith look like when the crucible is searing, when it doesn't seem like you can't take it anymore, when you are at the end of your robe? What does faith look like under such circumstances? Well, Jesus' inner circle of disciples, the 11, of course, Judas had left by this time, are about to see their world crumble. Uh, we've been exploring the upper room discourse, Jesus' final time with these disciples. He's been teaching them and preparing them the best he can for the events which will turn their world upside down. And we are at the final instructions of this upper room discourse, the end of chapter 16 of the Gospel of John. And in this text, Jesus shows us just what kind of faith it will take, not just to be saved, but to get through the collapse of their world. Jesus is taking from them. He will be beaten, he'll be crucified, and he'll be buried. And even after the resurrection, what kind of faith it will take to survive and overcome the onslaught of the enemy as this small fledgling church seeks to spread the gospel throughout the world that is hostile to God and to Christ. And so our text is John 16, beginning in verse 23. In that day, Jesus says, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request the Father on your behalf, 
for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. He tells them that they're about to be blasted, in other words. An hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered. What kind of faith, then, will carry them through? What kind of faith do we need to carry us through in the challenges that we face, in the onslaught of life's declining years, in the collapse of our moral culture, and in any number of tribulations as Jesus would describe them? What kind of faith do we need? Well, first we need a prayerful faith. It's safe to say that the kind of faith that we need in the midst of challenging times is a prayerful faith. We must have the kind of faith whose first impulse when the going gets tough is to pray. And we need to have the kind of familiarity with Jesus that conversation with our Savior comes easily and quickly. The kind of relationship where we don't have to reintroduce ourselves to Jesus like we haven't seen each other since our last high school reunion. Excuse me, Jesus, I don't know if you remember me, but it's not that kind of relationship we need. We need a more intimate and regular prayerful relationship. In order to get through times when life is coming apart at the seams, we need constant communication with the Lord of all the earth. And it's not the kind of prayer life which, as John Piper once observed, is like asking the house servant for more comforts in the den. Instead, it's like the kind of prayer when the sergeant is in the foxhole with shells raining down all around him and on his squad, and he's on the walkie-talkie pleading for more resources and reinforcements. That's the kind of faith we must have, a prayerful faith even as the praying is desperate. Now, the final instruction in this Upper Room Discourse begins at just this point, teaching his disciples about prayer. But as you'll remember, it's not the only instruction on prayer in this discourse. Back in John 14, verse 13, he said, Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Chapter 15, verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Uh, John 15, 16, and you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. 
And so Jesus has been teaching the disciples a lot about prayer in his final time with them. He's taught them that believing prayer is about the glory of God so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. He's taught that believing prayer flows from abiding in Christ and in his word. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, then you will ask anything from the Father and he will give it to you. He's taught that believing prayer flows from his electing grace. You did not choose me, but I chose you. He taught that believing prayer fuels their capacity to bear spiritual fruit, that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. So one final time, Jesus is here reminding them of these crucial instructions on having a prayerful faith, and in so doing, he reaffirms some things that he's already taught them, yet adds one more crucial dimension of prayerful faith. The first thing that he reminds them of is the extravagance of prayer. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Ask what? Anything. Now, that's extravagant praying. The Father will give you anything that you want. Just ask him. Of course, there are all the earlier conditions the glory of God, abiding in Christ and His Word, the priority of prayer so that they would bear spiritual fruit. But He's already taught them to pray extravagantly, and once again, He drives that glorious message home. He also speaks of Christ-centered praying. If you ask the Father for anything in my name, He will give it to you. It must be in the name of Christ, in the name of Jesus. And that's just not a, a formula for the way we end our prayers. We pray, we pray, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. No, that means that we are seeking the mind of Jesus. We're seeking to follow the will of Jesus. It means that we are willing to submit our minds, wills, and emotions to Jesus. We're taught in the Lord's pray to pray, thy will be done. Jesus himself prayed that way in Gethsemane. There are some in the faith community who believe that to pray, if it be your will, to Jesus is hedging your bets and shows a lack of faith. Nothing could be further from the truth. Praying in submission to the will of Jesus is the essence of genuine faith. Prayerful faith is Christ-centered. We're commanded to pray in Jesus' name, submitting our minds, wills, and emotions to Jesus. So as we pray extravagantly and pray in a Christ-centered way, what else did Jesus add to his instruction in this seminar on prayer in the Upper Room Discourse. Well, he tells us about joy-filling prayer. Until now, he says, you have asked for any, not asked for anything, excuse me, until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be made full. Prayerful faith is joyful faith. Joy is not dependent on our circumstances. Joy is not dependent on our difficulties. Joy is dependent on the knowledge that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. Joy is dependent on the knowledge that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Joy is dependent on the knowledge that neither tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. Do you believe that, dear friends? 
When we pray that the kind of, for that kind of faith or with that kind of faith, we find our souls filling up with joy, our minds resonating with the glorious redemptive purpose of God and Jesus, our wills delighting to obey the commands of our Savior, our emotions filled to overflowing with the pleasures of God, joy-filling prayer, extravagant prayer, Christ-centered prayer, that's a prayerful faith. The kind of faith that we need in difficult times is also a loving faith. It's faith rooted in the Father's love for His dear children. It's faith in which the true believer reciprocates with a heart filled with love for the one who so loved us that He sent His own Son into the world to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, or as the real Scriptures say, the propitiation for our sins. Faith is in, in which the believer can't wait to express our love to the one who has poured out his love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Verse 26, in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will request of the Father on your behalf. Listen, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. Jesus is saying that the love relationship with the Father is such that he no longer has to do the asking for us. We can ask the Father directly. Why? Because the Father loves us. Jesus has already taught them that. He did it in the Lord's Prayer, which you just said a few moments ago. When you pray, say, Our Father. Now, that was revolutionary in that day, that the Jew could actually speak to the Father directly. You can if you believe in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, if your faith is genuine, it's because the Father loves you. This knowledge of the, and the doctrines of grace which flow from it uh, in the Scriptures transformed Martin Luther. God for Luther was an austere, distant, fearsome, judgmental, tyrannical despot. Luther once said, love God, sometimes I hate him. But once he saw that through faith in Jesus Christ alone, God was not his enemy but his dearest friend, the hate became love, deep and abiding love for the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The kind of faith we need for our most troubling times is a faith that is confident that God loves us, that God is for us, and that is confident that he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? The faith we need is not only prayerful faith, it's loving faith because the Father loved us and is for us. It's also truthful faith. There is a remarkable verse in this passage which encapsulates the whole of the gospel. And that our faith to get us through tough times in these challenging times, the times of tribulation, needs to be rooted in the gospel truth and the truth of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that verse is verse 28, where Jesus says, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. Very interesting verse, isn't it? Four simple phrases in one sentence that describes the whole of the gospel. 
It first describes the pre-existence of Christ. I came forth from the Father. Jesus is the Son of God. As he told, quote, those Jews who had believed him back in John chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God. He came from the Father. This is a concise statement of the preexistence and the deity of Jesus Christ. And unless Jesus came from the Father, we have no Savior. He also teaches in this one verse the incarnation of Christ. I, ha- I came from the Father and have come into the world. That's the incarnation. The eternally begotten Son of God adorned himself with our humanity and entered our world. This is the final message in the John for a while, and believe it or not, the reason for that is that next week begins Advent. Do you believe that? Astonishing. And in the Advent, we celebrate this one phrase, I have come into the world. And we're going to do it by celebrating, by the way, the songs of Advent starting next week. But this sentence teaches not only the preexistence of Christ, but it teaches the incarnation, the advent of Christ. But there's even more. It teaches about the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world and am leaving the world again. Uh, This phrase encapsulates all that is about to happen to Jesus, which will take him away from them. His life, all that he taught and he did, how it antagonized the religious authorities, which led to his crucifixion, which eventually led to his resurrection. And then finally, the ascension of Christ is in view in this verse. I came forth from the Father, have come into the world, I'm leaving the world again, listen, and I'm going to the Father. Going to the Father, the ascension of Jesus Christ. We celebrate Advent and we celebrate Christmas, the coming of the Son of God into our world, cloaked in our humanity. And we certainly celebrate the resurrection, seasonally in Easter, but we celebrate it every week we worship on Sunday. Do you realize that's why we worship on Sunday? Sunday is the Lord's Day, the day when Jesus rose from the dead. But we, quite honestly, in the church in general, don't really celebrate the ascension very well. But we should. Jesus ascended to the Father and now sits exalted at the right hand of God, according to Acts chapter 2, verse 33, where he orchestrates the events of history, bringing all things to their appointed conclusion. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead, listen, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is where Jesus intercedes, by the way, for us individually, according to Romans 8.34. What a glorious gospel. And it's here in this one sentence, the preexistence of Christ, the Son of God, came into the world as the God-man, died in our place and was buried, rose from the dead, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Yes, there ought to be an amen there somewhere. 
In this one sentence, you have the whole, by the way, of the Apostles' Creed, essentially, at least the part about Jesus. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. That's the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's encapsulated in one verse in chapter 16. And that's the kind of faith we need, a faith that is rooted in these great truths of the Christian faith, truths that will never be swept away by the vagaries of human history, truth that will never be swept away by the tides of the times. This is truthful faith. And then it's also persevering faith that Jesus is urging on his disciples. Verse 31, Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. They will be scattered. They will be persecuted. Most of them will be killed, martyred, all because they would have persevering faith, prayerful faith, living faith. And loving faith, truthful faith, will inevitably produce persevering faith, faith that will not just survive, but faith that will prosper, faith that will carry the gospel by the end of the first century to across the, the entire Roman Empire and beyond, faith that will inevitably fulfill the Great Commission so that there will be believers from every people, tongue, and tribe, and nation worshiping around the throne of the Lamb of God. And that's why Jesus says they need to have courageous faith. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, and he says this, but take courage, I've overcome the world. If you have genuine faith, you can be courageous, even in the face of tribulation. And by the way, dear friends, without tribulation you can't have courage. You don't find courage on easy street, but you can have courage. You know why? Because Jesus Christ has overcome the world. That's what he says. Yes, there ought to be an amen. I have overcome the world, Jesus says, and you can too. You can have overcoming faith because Jesus Christ has overcome the world. So believer, have courage. Stand firm. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. It's not in vain because Christ has overcome the world. You can have that kind of overcoming faith. Heavenly Father, move in our hearts. Accomplish your purposes in each one of us, giving us the faith that we need for turbulent times for challenging circumstances, for times of loss. And we'll give you glory for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.